choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 280 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, Carbon Dioxide. Back on Earth, Ed Smiley stepped into the elevator in Building 30 of the Manned Spacecraft Center. He faced forward and watched as the silver doors closed. He held a metal box awkwardly under his arm. Turning to his right, he reached toward the row of buttons and with the faintest sense of ceremony, pressed 3, the mission control floor. As the chief of crew systems design, Smiley had no cause to be modest about what he did for a living. It might be the Cy Librigat and John Aaron and Bob Hesselmeyer who sat at the consecrated consoles in mission control and kept the environmental hardware in a moon-bound limb and command module up and running, but it was Ed Smiley and his crew who helped develop and test those life support systems in the first place. It was important work, but it was also anonymous work. While the Librigots, Aarons, and Hesselmeyers spent their work days in the spacious auditorium of Building 30, With the media broadcasting their every move, Smiley and his men spent their time in the network of labs in buildings 7, 4, and 45. Today, however, was different. Today, the men on the floor of Mission Control very much wanted to see Smiley, and more specifically, to see the cumbersome object he was carrying with him. Ever since Monday night, When Apollo 13s first began to bang and vent and spin, the men at the Space Center, and specifically the engineers in crew systems, had been fretting about the lithium hydroxide question. The problem of trying to fit the command module's square air-scrubbing cartridges into the limb's round receptacles was a low-tech issue on a flight beset by so many high-tech malfunctions but it was a pressing issue nonetheless. With three men living and respiring in Aquarius, the first of the lunar module cartridges should become saturated with CO2 by the 85th hour mark in the mission, requiring the second and last one to be snapped into place. Well, before the ship reached home, that cartridge would be full as well, and the astronauts would quickly choke to death on their own waste gases. Smiley's Apollo 13 experience began after switching on his television Monday night and learning of Apollo 13's accident. 
He immediately telephoned the crew systems office and asked the desk man what the problem was with 13. The only information the desk man had was that the astronauts were running out of oxygen and were moving over to the limb. Smiley realized immediately they were going to have a CO2 problem, and he drove to Building 7. The crew systems lab in Building 7 was not a simple affair. Included in the multi-million dollar facility was a room-sized vacuum chamber used to check out a spacecraft's environmental control system. The life support backpacks that were used on the surface of the moon and the spacesuits themselves. The chamber's air could be reduced from sea level pressure down to the 5.5 pounds per square inch required in a spacecraft, or even down to the near vacuum of the moon. Like both the command module and the lunar module, the vacuum chamber also had a fully functioning lithium hydroxide air purification system. As Smiley sped to Building 7, Less than an hour after hearing of Apollo 13's peril, a crude solution to Aquarius's carbon dioxide problem began to take shape in his head. The LIMS lithium hydroxide system, like the command modules, worked with the aid of a fan that drew spacecraft atmosphere through intake vents in the front of the air-scrubbing cartridge out again through exit vents in the rear and back into the cockpit, stripped of its unwanted CO2. Attached to the wall of the cockpit were also two sets of hoses so that in the event of an atmospheric leak in the spacecraft, the commander and the limb pilot could plug their pressure suits directly into this air-purifying, life-preserving loop. In order to make the oversized command module cartridges work in the inhospitable limb, what Smiley envisioned doing was inserting the back half, the outflow half, of the bulky lithium hydroxide box into a plastic bag and taping the bag in place with heavy airtight duct tape. An arched piece of cardboard taped inside the bag would hold it rigid and prevent it from collapsing against the outflow vents. Smiley would then punch a small hole in the bag and insert the loose end of one of the pressure suit hoses into it, making this connection airtight with tape as well. With the LIMS air purification system running, atmosphere would be drawn through the front of the square canister, out the back, into the bag, and through the hose. From there, it would run through the limb's own air-scrubbing pipes and back into the cabin of the ship. In essence, the CO2 cleaning system of the limb would work exactly as it was designed to, with the exception that the jury-rigged command module canister connected to the intake hose would take the place of the used-up limb canister further downstream. When the new canister was itself exhausted, a fresh one could be prepared and attached in its place. Smiley arrived at Building 7 at 11.30 Monday night and was met in the lobby by his assistant, Jim Coriel. The two men hurried to their lab, 
fired up the environmental chamber, and working with an inactive lithium hydroxide canister, missing the scrubbing crystals, built the device Smiley had already built in his head. When the two engineers attached the makeshift device to the mock-up environmental system and turned on the fan, they found that their rapidly concocted invention seemed to work satisfactorily. But in order to test the system fully, they needed genuine cartridges. The problem was none were available in Houston at 3 a.m. Tuesday, Smiley was on the phone to the launch center at the Cape to see if anyone had any live cartridges on the shelf. And by 4 a.m., the technicians in Florida had managed to scare up a few that were intended for installation in Apollo 14 or 15. The people at the Cape loaded them onto a chartered jet and flew them to Houston. For most of the following day, Smiley and Coriel lived in their lab, pumping their limb chamber full of carbon dioxide and then watching as the newly arrived cartridges with their cut-and-paste modifications sponged the poisonous gas out of the air, leaving only breathable oxygen behind. Now, in the early hours of Wednesday morning, the Building 30 elevator bumped to a stop at the third floor. Smiley stepped out, carrying his strange, unnatural invention with him. Walking down the white, windowless hall, he at last came to a pair of heavy metal doors on the left, marked Mission Operations Control Room. He opened the doors, stepped inside, and scanned the room uneasily. There were no humble crew system engineers here, no anonymous technicians, just the glamorous ECOMs and TELMUs and FIDOs and flight directors. Smiley made his way down the aisle looking for Deke Slayton, Chris Kraft, or Gene Krantz. With each passing minute, he knew the three astronauts in the distant ship were coming closer to choking on their own carbon dioxide. Smiley realized that the little box he had just invented would likely save their lives. Back on Apollo 13, Fred Hayes rather enjoyed being alone in his limb. He liked the unaccustomed quiet, the extra elbow room, and most of all, he liked the brief chance to be in charge of his own ship. Unlike the commander of the three-man lunar crew, who enjoyed near-absolute authority over the vehicles and of the men placed in his charge, and unlike the command module pilot, who would assume total command of the mothership during the two days his crewmates were off flying their limb, the lunar module pilot would never take the helm of either ship he was aboard. For men who, before joining NASA, made their living as test pilots, this was a little disturbing. At 3 o'clock Wednesday morning, however, as Jim Lovell and Jack Swaggart were entering the second hour of their sleep shift in Odyssey, Fred Hayes, third in command of a crew of three, found himself drifting around his well-loved Aquarius alone. I can just uh, barely on the left corner of the moon now uh, make out the uh, foothills of the uh, Marrow Formation. Never did uh, get to see it when we were in close there. 
Okay, I'm uh, reading on my monitor here, Fred, that you're uh, 16,214 miles away from the moon, moving at uh, about 4,500 feet a sec. Okay. The uh, sounds of all the uh, work that is going on and is still going on, uh, this flight's uh, probably a lot uh, bigger test for the uh, system on the ground than up here. Yeah, you've been uh, you've been working it out a little bit. Well, everybody down here is 100% optimistic. Uh, looks like we're on the upside of the whole thing now. Yeah, I guess uh, we better be in pretty good shape. Uh, uh, I think for ourselves rested uh, for that uh, entry day. I think that's going to be a pretty busy one. Right, and uh, we're working on uh, procedures for that. Uh, Ken's been doing quite a bit of work on uh, getting ready for entry. Very good. That was a good TV show you put put on the other night, Fred, uh, during Lem, Lem Entry. Yeah, it would have been an even better one about uh, 10 minutes later. Yeah, things sure uh, turned to worms there in a hurry after that show. Uh, sometime when you're not too busy chewing on that uh, beef, how about telling us what the CO2 reads? The Capcom's casual nature hid the sense of urgency behind his request for a CO2 reading. Ed Smiley's visit to Mission Control had been a happy one for both the engineer and the flight controllers. The makeshift air scrubber had intrigued Slayton, Krantz, Kraft, and the group of LIM environmental officers who crowded around Capcom's desk, and the report of the successful test in the vacuum chamber in Building 7 had convinced them that the inelegant contraption could indeed work. Now, after Smiley had come and gone, his prototype remained atop Capcom Lousma's console, attracting controllers who would walk by and examine it. The fact that Smiley's box could be easily assembled in his lab was no guarantee it could be just as easily assembled in space. And the time for getting started on the job was growing short. Carbon dioxide concentrations in the command module and the limb were tracked with a non-power-consuming instrument resembling a thermometer, which measured the pressure of carbon dioxide in the overall atmosphere. In a healthy ship, the needle should climb no higher than 2 or 3 millimeters of mercury. When it rose above 7, the crew was instructed to change their lithium hydroxide canisters. If it was allowed to rise above 15, it meant that the canisters had absorbed about all they could and that before long, the first signs of CO2 poisoning, lightheadedness, disorientation, and nausea would set in. As Fred Hayes checked the gauge, what he saw brought him up short. Okay, I'm reading uh, 13.13. Okay, uh, looks like our reading is getting kind of close to yours. Lousma told Hayes they needed to get started putting together the air scrubber canister after the commander's sleep period was over. However, as Lousma was saying this, Hayes heard a rustling noise in the tunnel. He glanced up and saw Lovell, red-eyed with fatigue, 
floating head first into Aquarius. Lovell descended toward the ascent engine cover, flipped over, and pulled himself down to a seated position with a thump. You're awful early, Hayes said. Lovell yawned. It's too cold up there, Fredo. You gotta stay real still. I tried staying still. It doesn't help anymore. If it's much above 34 degrees in there, I'd be surprised. Lovell reached forward, put his headset on, and called down to Lousma. Hello, Houston, uh, Aquarius. Hello there, Aquarius. Go ahead. Roger, and uh, Fred is uh, being released now. He's going back to uh, get the rest of uh, here. Gee you got up kind of early, Dan. doing was uh, letting you sleep a little bit longer because I uh, figured you're pretty worn out. Is uh, Jack up there with you? Lovell indicated that Swigert was still sacked out and Hayes was about to join him. Okay, uh, sometime when you get two guys available there and you could uh, construct one of these lithium hydroxide rigs, uh, I'd like to uh, have you get the materials together and uh, we'll go through the steps together. There's a lot of background noise, and uh, sometimes it's worse than others. And uh, right now, I hear you better than I have in the past. Though there was more than an hour left in the sleep cycle, and Swigert, unlike Lovell, had managed to fall asleep inside the frosty odyssey, the sudden chatter and bustle coming from the limb soon roused him. Just minutes after Lovell dropped down through the tunnel, Swigert appeared as well. On the ground, Joe Kerwin, who was scheduled to begin his fourth shift as Capcom, went on duty too, taking Lousma's place behind the console. Lovell called down to Capcom to inform them that Jack was up. Uh, here's Aquarius. Aquarius Houston, go ahead. Okay, Jim, uh, the way I thought it might be best to do it would be to have you uh, gather the equipment and let us talk you through the procedure while you do it. Uh, maybe you could give Jack the headset and, uh, and uh, get the equipment together and, uh, and we'll talk you through the procedure. I, I think it'll be a little easier to do that way than if you tried to copy it all down and, and then go do it. Okay, uh, I think the equipment you'll need will be command module lithium hydroxide canisters, a roll of the uh, gray tape, the two LCGs because we're going to use the bags from the LCGs, and one, uh, one LEM cue card, one of the cardboard cue cards which you will cut off 
about a, an inch and a half uh, out from the rings. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's all we'll need. Over. For the next hour, the work aboard Apollo 13 was like a scavenger hunt, with Kerwin reading from the list of supplies Smiley had provided him, and Kraft, Slayton, Lausma, and other controllers standing behind him and consulting similar lists. The crew were dispatched around the spacecraft to gather materials that had never been intended to be used in the manner they were about to be. Swigert floated back up to the Odyssey and collected a pair of scissors, two of the command module's oversized lithium hydroxide canisters, and a roll of gray duct tape that was supposed to be used for securing bags of refuge to the ship's bulkhead in the final days of the mission. Hayes dug out his book of limb procedures and turned to the heavy cardboard pages that carried instructions for lifting off from the moon, pages he now knew he had no use for, and removed them from their rings. Lovell opened the storage cabinet at the back of the limb and pulled out the plastic-wrapped thermal undergarments he and Hayes would have worn beneath their pressure suits while walking on the moon. Of course, these were not normal long johns. These one-piece suits had dozens of feet of slender tubing woven into the fabric, through which the water would have circulated to keep the astronauts cool as they worked on the moon. Lovell cut open the plastic packaging, tossed the now useless Union suits back into the cabinet, and kept the now very useful plastic with him. When the materials had been gathered, Capcom Joe Kerwin began reading up the assembly instructions Smiley had written. The work was, at best, slow going. Okay, now uh, pick up one of the uh, lithium hydroxide canisters and uh, uh, let me describe which, which end is, uh, is, is which. Uh, it's uh, approximately square on one, one of the vented uh, uh, flat ends has the strap, and that end we call the top, the end opposite we call the bottom. Is that clear, over? Okay, I've got it, Joe. Okay, uh, now then, we're, we want you to take the tape and uh, cut out two pieces about three feet long or uh, a good arm's length. And uh, what, you're, what we want you to do with them is to make two belts around the sides of the canister, one belt near the top and one belt near the bottom with the sticky side out. Wrap it around, sticky side out as, uh, as tight as possible. It'll probably take both of you to, to get it nice and snug, over. Okay, fine. Uh, uh, the next step now is to anchor that tape, and the way we want you to do that is to cut about a two-foot length off the roll and then tear it lengthwise so that you have two strips about two feet long and about a half an inch wide. And you'll wrap those around the canister at right angles more or less to the uh, to the tape that you've got so that it goes across the top and across the bottom. And when it goes across the top and the bottom, uh, put it so that it's outboard of the center hole 
and uh, try to get it over one of the ridges between the screens so that it won't block the flow. Is that clear, over? Yeah, Joe. Very clear. Okay, press on. Okay, that will be the sticky end down uh, on the container, right? Oh, that's correct. I forgot to say that. That's right. This conversation continued for an hour until finally the first canister was done. The crewmen stood back, folded their arms, and looked happy at the preposterous tape and paper object hanging from the pressure suit hose. Swigert informed Houston that it was complete and he was instructed to see if air was flowing through it. With Lovell and Hayes standing over him, Swigert pressed his ear against the open end of the canister. Softly, but unmistakably, he could hear air being drawn through the vent slats and presumably across the pristine lithium hydroxide crystals. In Houston, controllers crowded around the screen at the Telmuse console, staring at the carbon dioxide readout. In the spacecraft, Swigert, Lovell, and Hayes turned to their instrument panel and did the same. Slowly, almost imperceptibly at first, the needle on the CO2 scale began to fall. First to 12, then to 11.5, then to 11 and below. The men on the ground in mission control turned to one another and smiled. The men in the cockpit of Aquarius did the same. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 280 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 13, Carbon Dioxide. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed. And if you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, well, I have some good news. We are all the way caught up with the main RSS feed. Episodes 1 through 104 are available on the archive, and the rest are available on the main feed. Today, we salute our most popular level of donation, which is Apollo. There are 100 Apollo donors so far this year. Apollo donors contribute $50 or more during the calendar year. Thank you for your continued support, Apollo donors. This is a special announcement. We will have an encore episode next week as my real-life responsibilities have finally caught up with me and I must get some things done next week. So look for the encore episode next week. Okay, I had a few thoughts on this episode. My sources were... Lost Moon by Jim Lovell, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Flight by Chris Kraft, The NASA Apollo 13 Technical Air-to-Ground Voice Transcription, and the Johnson Space Center. Hope everyone had a nice Thanksgiving. I surely did. As you may have noticed in the credits, I have found a substitute for the Apollo 13 Flight Journal. The NASA Apollo 13 Technical Air-to-Ground Voice Transcription. 
is a PDF file. Not quite as easy to use as the flight journal, which is web-based. Wanted to apologize for the noisy audio. That was the best I could find. It was from the Internet Archive. The capsule was hard to hear, I know, so I tried to explain what was going on as best I could. Also, there were a lot of long pauses in the communications during the construction of the air scrubber. I tried to cut those pauses out, so keep in mind that the construction did not go as fast as it seemed on the audio. Well, that is another major hurdle for Apollo 13. I hope Jim is feeling a little more optimistic now. I know I am. I have placed the audio and some pictures for this episode on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Please check that out. We were pleased to receive several donations to support the podcast over the past week. Hubert D. from Germany donated at the Apollo level. Andrew A. from the UK donated at the Soyuz level. Andrew M. from Georgia donated at the Vostok level and earned his satellite emoji. Robert M. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Salyut level with rocket emoji. Nick M. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Tina R. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. And Jack G. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Our Patreon donors are now at 201, with a goal of reaching 218 for 2018. So we are 17 Patreon supporters below the goal. Our total donors for the year have reached 388 with a goal of reaching 418 by the end of the year. That leaves us about 30 donors short of the goal. Will we make our goal in 2018? I don't know. Maybe. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. You may have noticed that we don't have any commercials or ad revenue. That is on purpose. We are entirely listener-supported. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. And this is a great time of the year for the Emoji Maneuver. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. For those of you who have donated already in 2018, we certainly appreciate it. This week we're giving away the official SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. Mrs. SRH randomly selected Jonathan Davis. Jonathan Davis, if you would email me and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you promptly. Okay, folks, that's about all I have for this week. Next week will be an Encore episode, and the following week we will continue with Apollo 13, episode number 281. So long for now.